The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. For a full list of current recommendations and stocks owned by staff, members of Intelligent Investor can visit www.intelligentinvestor.com.au. Welcome to Stock Take. My name's Gaurav Sodhi. Today I'm joined by a special guest, the CEO, the Chief Operating Officer, <laughs> <laughs> the head of our Vancouver office, Graham Whitcomb. Welcome, Graham. It's great to see you back hey, in Australia. Um, and also, oh, yeah, James Greenhouse is also here. Hey, oh, James. Hi, Gaurav. <laughs> hey, Graham. Great having you in the office. Usually it's great to have JG around, but uh, when we have someone like Graham in the office, which only happens a couple of times a year, for those who don't know, Graham actually works out of Canada. Um, and, um, and he's only in the office rarely, so it's good to have you around. Um, Graham, um, while you've we've got you here, I want to pick your brain about Tabcorp, which is a company we've been following for some time, but we've never actually upgraded before. And in fact, it's a company that's provoked you to change your mind to some degree. I, I, I like this idea of looking at a business for a long time and slowly being able to change one's opinion about it. What is it about Tabcorp that um, got you thinking and how did you change your opinion on it? Uh, I've been following the company for, for a long time now, at least 10 years. I used to work in their offices, um, though for a different company here in Sydney. Uh, From gambler to investor, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I used to be very against the company. I really thought it was going to uh, – it just didn't have a place in the future mm -hmm. um, because – it was stuck in this kind of brick and mortar uh, existence where it had the typical uh, tab shops that you would see around where these online competition, uh, oh, sorry, online competitors were popping up everywhere that were offering much better odds. And it just seemed to me that because of their business model being so much, uh, such a lower cost compared to Tabcore that they were just going to just win very easily because it was always a better deal to go to the online guys. Uh and that did kind of play out for yeah. the first eight or so years that the online operators, Sportsbet in particular, uh, Betfair and some of the others, uh, took a huge amount of market share from Tabcor. Uh, however, uh, a couple of years ago, things started to change and it, took a, it did take a while for me to completely uh, flip. But I started seeing the trends uh, not completely reversed, but really slowed down uh, in terms of the loss of market share has now completely evened out. There was the merger between Tats and Tabcor, which had a big benefit in that because there was so much overlap in their uh, operating expenses, they were able to reduce their operating expenses a lot, which could then be paid back to punters through lower odds. Mm. So there was that, that disadvantage they had against the online operators was then starting to be eroded. Then... Earlier this year, there was a uh, point of consumption taxes, and there were just a few different, which which I should say, disadvantages, um, or it uh, creates an advantage for Tabcor now because it used to have to pay uh, taxes in each state versus just a single tax for everyone now. So the online operators used to work in Northern Territory to take advantage of this lower tax, uh, whereas Tabcor would have to pay for every state it was operating in. My understanding is the lotteries business is the best business, but what you're mainly talking about here is the wagering business. And so, I mean, I, I saw that the pro forma earnings for 2019 are still falling. So what's going to change about the wagering business in the future there? The 
for the wagering, so you're right. The, the lotteries, I tend to think and talk a lot about the wagering business in the reviews that we've uh, written, but the lotteries business is this, uh, well, it's, it's a monopoly that's an extremely strong core, but because it's so stable and uh, relatively easy to value in, in the sense of having very stable cash flows, uh, it can almost be forgotten to some extent that you've got <laughs> half the business is just, it's going to be there. It's going to do fine over time. Uh, the swing factor comes almost entirely from the wagering business. So that's where it gets the most That is so and, true. And just view. as a general point, um, in as an analyst, we tend to focus our time on complexity and difficulty, not necessarily on importance. I find myself doing that all the time with big conglomerates. I focus on what's complicated and unknown and not necessarily on what's important. You've got to sort of pull yourself yeah, out and, and, and do it. That, that is very true. It does have a um, kind of mesmerizing effect. Yes, all of the right. movement, all of the changes, you're <laughs> yeah. like, oh, what's going on here? Whereas the lotteries business is this set and forget, very yep. boring monopoly for 50 years and mm. you don't have to think too much about it. Um, a ham sandwich got operated, as <laughs> Buffett would say. <laughs> um, but anyway, on the wagering front, yeah, that does take... Uh, a lot more of my attention. Uh, but also it's where the changes are happening. And so where Tabcor used to have this big disadvantage there, it's now slowly starting to improve a lot. Uh, and you can see that those trends are working in its advantage. They're not kind of theoretical because market share losses are going down. The ratio of... Sorry, market share losses, did I say? Uh, the ratio of kind of marketing expenditure to revenues is declining, which for the past eight years it hasn't. It's consistently gone up because they've been kind of desperately trying to get their footing back against these online operators and market expenses went tripled basically over three over eight years, uh, whereas now they're starting to decline again. So in terms of where their earnings are going, to get back to your question, in terms of where earnings are going uh, over the medium term, next year they may... Uh, decline slightly or stay roughly where they are. But if marketing expenses continue to decline because they've now established their oligopoly online uh, with Sportsbet, then that would be a big boost for earnings. The rest of the savings coming through from the merger with uh, TATS, the bulk of those are still to come. Uh, so there are, there are a few different things that are leading to what we expect to be higher earnings at least a few years from now so are they going to actually be closing these stores was that already been happening because i mean i must admit i wonder who who goes in the tabs anymore um, so i mean that's it seems to me uh, an easy way to save money but is is the other stores a competitive advantage uh they are in the sense that there are a bunch of people that still do value going to the store that especially with older groups that aren't older age groups that aren't using the online or haven't seen the advantages of online, they still like the the fun of getting up on a Friday yeah. and going into the store. So I don't think they're going to disappear anytime soon, but you would expect that as more and more, like every single year, the uh, turnover moves away from the on-track and stores and towards online. So it makes sense that if you think 10 years from now, by far the bulk of their uh, betting turnover is going to come from online apps and uh, there are other platforms on on the internet that you would expect that they're going to be withdrawing some of their stores to, well, because they'll eventually become unprofitable. 
Graham, let's talk about the lotteries business for a moment. The um, gambling business. Yeah. The ga- <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is clearly the best part of Tapcorp, and this is um, the big reason why we're interested in the stock is really the um, the economics of this business and the way the online portion is growing so strongly. There's been some discussion about them potentially even splitting lotteries from wagering. The company has denied all of this and said they're not interested, that there are synergies involved. Do you see any synergies between those two groups? And, and how do you rate the chances of actually extracting the lotteries business out of Tab, uh, Tabcorp? Yeah, from what I can see, there aren't there aren't really any synergies yeah, between I I don't see it the lotteries yeah. and the... Uh, definitely com- combining TATS and TABCORP's wagering operations had a huge advantage. Yeah. But lotteries is just kind of tagged on. Even though it's another gambling company, it uh, it operates very, very differently, has a different business model, different kind of uh, regulatory setup. So there's not really any overlap there. But um, what it does provide to TABCORP is a very stable base that it can then use to... Uh, well, just create this nice stable cash flow that then they can cycle back into the wagering business with a lot more stability and kind of a long-term outlook compared to their competitors who are having to do, well, they're not having to think short-term necessarily, but because earnings are much more volatile in wagering, it just it does change how you would uh, allocate capital basically. Yeah, I, I think that's true. But in doing that, I think, it, it means that you're never quite realizing the value in that lottery business because the cash flow is being reinvested at variable, uncertain, and often low rates of return. Um, whereas if that was a standalone business, the cash coming out of there, I mean, that could justify really big valuations. And yeah. um, I'd be more interested in a lottery business standing alone rather than one that was attached yeah, from to an wagering. In, as an investor, I would definitely prefer that as well because mm. you've got this phenomenal business that if it was standalone it really would be a set-and-forget type of stock, whereas combined with wagering, it requires much more um, constant attention. But in terms of them actually spinning it off, it probably... I can't imagine it would make much sense for management to want to do that because it takes so little attention compared to the rest of the business but has such a disproportionate amount of uh, cash flow contributing it mm. to it. I can't imagine management would be particularly eager to get rid of it because they know that it's an extremely valuable and highly valued uh, side aspect of their, of their business. And I don't think it would really create much distraction for other companies that have all these different operating segments. It might be very distracting, but I'm guessing that it doesn't in this case. Uh, it just seems like a way for management to make their own jobs easier by having the lotteries business there. It's effective subsidy for the wagering business. Exactly. If you think about just something basic for the CEO's pay, where if he's being compensated based on the size of the company, what Mm -hmm. earnings are, if you've got this one side of the business that doubles the profit of the business, of the the overall company, without requiring 10% of your attention. Mr. Ham Sandwiches uh, does all the work. Yeah, exactly. It it makes sense to hold on to it. and I don't think there'd really be any particular advantage of spinning it off. You mentioned maybe the the extra focus could uh, would help it out, but I'm not sure that it would because lotteries is so heavily regulated, yep. uh, and it's kind of maxed out in terms of um, it's not really a hugely growing market or anything. Uh, the people that are, there there is a consistent trickle of new 
players, mm. which is making turnover grow at around 4% a year. Uh, but it's not some, it's something that's been around for 100 years. So it's not as if it's some new market that they're penetrating and growing really quickly uh, in terms of users or anything. So, Although the online segment is growing strongly and they're actually giving away a lot of margins um, to uh, Jumbo. Take Jumbo, for example. That's, that's a billion-dollar business that really should – all that margin should be um, tab corps by right. You know, they're sort of yeah. giving, giving that away. And I think a more focused business might actually look at how to capture that margin and internalize it. I, I completely agree with that, Gaurav. For me, I think that there's, it actually it's actually wrong for these businesses to be together and partly because you don't want a very, very strong business and a lottery subsidizing a weaker one in, a, in the wagering. And um, I, the thing about – I'm a big fan of focus. And if you have two businesses stand on their own two feet – they tend to find, um, rather than they're sort of being subsidising between the two different divisions, the lotteries will find could find ways to improve its business. And they, they, as you say, Grove, there might be a more focus on cost cutting or whatever to to do it. But also, I think the wagering business probably is actually best if it stands on its own two feet, mm. because if, if otherwise you you get um, there's this. It's like this backstop. The lotteries is like this backstop provides the cash flow if anything ever goes wrong. Yeah, that's Whereas if the wagering business stands on its own, you know, it, it can uh, you have management um, very very focused on it and devoting all their attention trying to grow revenue, cut costs, that sort of thing. At, at the moment, it's sort of like there's yeah there's there's um, there's a, there's they a have backstop. the safety yeah, net. Yeah, safety net. That's all yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good argument for it. Uh, definitely, the losses to Jumbo are interesting in that Jumbo just did online. Um, marketing much better than Tabcore, essentially. Um, whether that will continue isn't certain because Tabcore is definitely able to grow its uh, online lotteries, or it has been doing very well over the last couple of years uh, compared to Jumbo. But that does lend itself to saying that Tabcore hasn't been particularly focused on it. If this, it's not really a competitor, but a distributor could come along and take some of their margin but they're obviously doing something slightly better on the marketing side too which is expanding the potential players for tabcore so it's it's a symbiotic kind of mm. relationship but yeah over time i would expect if tabcore continues to do well with their online marketing to take the business back from uh what's it called from jumbo the other um, quick point to to make about tabcore um, before we finish up is that um it's one of the few big blue chips um, businesses that offers what, a four and a half percent fully frank yield an environment where you're probably getting less than half a percent on a savings account so it's i think there's a case to be made for conservative conservative investors um taking another look at this business that maybe in a higher interest rate environment we may not have looked at it, it probably makes more sense now today than it has in the past yeah so, and that was the point that i made in the last review is that the changes in interest rates do make a huge difference. That if interest rates were to double from here, then tab the the kind of stable cash flows from the lotteries, uh, none of that is going to change too much with the interest rate. The only thing that's going to change is the valuation. Yeah. So if they double, then it probably isn't a great buy from here. But if they stay where they are, uh, you're getting this 4.5% yield compared to what you're getting in a savings account, which isn't directly comparable. But... Um, that's still a much better business compared to most and you're getting a below average valuation. Uh, so that's a pretty good deal. Okay. Um, let's leave Tabcorp there. There's more information on Tabcorp on, on the website and, of course, it is on our buy list and I think it's in our portfolios as well at the moment, isn't it, Graham? 
I know it's in mine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, let me, I've got a question for you for, um, guys, actually. So um, if I asked you what the biggest business in the world is, without looking at the cheat notes, Graham, <laughs> what, 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 what would you say? What would the answer be? Apple? Yeah, you think about all of these businesses that are already listed. You kind of assume that it couldn't be yeah. privately owned. Um, JG? Yeah, and no, I knew it was a Ramco because it was okay. too big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so JG. Um, right, so um, the world's biggest business by a long way, I mean a long way, is Saudi Aramco, the national oil company of Saudi Arabia, which I think it struck oil in the 1930s when Shell happened to be um, drilling in the area, um, it got nationalized. Um, after all this um, uh, conflict later on, and it's been the world's largest producer for decades. Um, it has the lowest extraction costs, said to be um, in, in raw cash terms about $2 a barrel in terms to extract uh -huh. oil. Um, and after you add in all the, um, all the big facilities and the depreciation, it's said to be about $20 a barrel, which is still really competitive, even in an environment of sort of $50, $60 oil. So no one comes close to the cost all the volumes that Saudi Aramco is able to generate. And attached to all the oil production, there are gigantic processing facilities. It's in its own right, it's a major um, chemicals business as well. So this is a, a huge international business, by far the biggest oil business in the world. I think if you took the top five listed oil companies um, in the world, it's like twice the size or three times the size of that combination itself. So it gives you some idea about the scale of this company. We're talking about it now because um, Saudi Aramco has now decided it will um, go through a – it will list some of its shares on the Saudi Stock Exchange, which I don't even know what the name of that is. <laughs> and, and later on, it might actually list them um, in London as well. But for the valuation being talked about is sort of $2 trillion. Between it's one a and very half small and two trillion. IPO compared, compared – it's only 1.5% of the shares, yeah. something like $25 wow. billion, which sounds sounds a huge amount of money, and yet it's a tiny proportion of the company. That's right. It's a tiny yeah. proportion. Yeah. So wh wh who, who actually owns this business? Yeah, this is not an easy question to answer. So I, in, on paper, technically, it's owned by the Saudi state. But if you ask the next-level question, who owns the Saudi state, it's the family. So the business is actually – in, in practice owned by the family. And this is why I think it's kind of interesting because here is a business that notionally, if I had to pick what the, you know, one of the best businesses in the world would be, I'd have to say it's got to be Aramco. I mean, this thing makes $100 billion of cash flow every year on modest oil prices. If, if oil were being disrupted, these guys would be the last, last people standing. They have hundreds of years of reserves and are likely to have decades of of profits in production left. This is a wonderful, actually really, really good business with unsurpassed competitive advantages in terms of cost. I would not touch it at any price. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is, so that, that $25 billion or whatever is, I presume, it's, I read that's going to the Saudi sovereign fund, but, I mean, this is not like the future fund in Australia, is it, where, mm. you know, that's going to go to pay public servants. I mean, we don't know really where that money is going apart from to the, the royal family or the Saudi state. Or, so you, you have to worry about what, what that means down the track for, for this company and how they can operate the company down the track. This is not a sort of a company like Apple or Amazon, which, has, which is sort of subject to... To, um, to you know, to long, which is owned in a in a sort of where the rule of law applies. Yeah, you've got to be quite careful about that. I think. Yeah, um, you're quite right. The the cash flows from the company have traditionally gone um, straight into the finances of the state, and in fact, something like seventy percent 
of the entire Saudi budget derives from Aramco itself. I'm not sure whether that's through taxation grants or equity or dividends or how that's allocated, but I do know that it's sort of three quarters of the Saudi budget comes directly from Aramco. So this is a company that exists to fund the lifestyles of the family and to fund um, the uh, functioning of a state. And I just think that when, when we're valuing a traditional business, say, say Apple, you know, something that's, that's huge, that generates plenty of cash flow, we will take that cash flow and, and value it because the assumption is that, that that cash flow belongs to the owners of that business, the equity owners, and at some point we can, we can get our hands on it. You know, um, that, I don't, those fundamental assumptions cannot be made of Aramco. We, we will, as a minority owner, and, and JG's right, it's only going to list sort of one and a half percent of its shares, you will never see that cash flow. You have no real legal call on it. Um, the, it it's, it's run for the benefit of the state and the family. And um, I would. This is one of the few businesses I would not buy at almost any price. You know, along with some Russian oil businesses as well. Um, so I, th I just I thought that was interesting. That here is a business that, um, in theory, is arguably the best business in the world, being offered as an IPO, and yet we're a bunch of value investors sitting here saying we wouldn't touch it at any price. So I think this is interesting though. Maybe if they were selling seventy percent of it, which clearly yeah. you know the the market yeah. couldn't absorb one and a half trillion dollars worth of stock. But but I mean, if they were selling that and giving up some control, but they're not giving up control. I think even then though, this these are the ultimate insider shareholders where they yeah. not only own the company but they set the laws that dict yes. that like govern the company. Mm. <laughs> so. Even if they gave away 99%, if they could instantly nationalize it again and just take control, then it doesn't really matter what they sell. They they set the rules. Well, it's an interesting thing, isn't it, about nationalization? I mean, there's a whole lot of there's other countries in the world which are talking about nationalizing certain assets, and mm -hmm. it is a quite interesting um, thing when you think about as an investor, can your company actually be grabbed away from you at any time? And you, you do actually have to think about that. Yeah. I mean, even returning back to Tats and Tabcorp, I mean, Tats, um, the, the, it had its its license of a poker machines taken off it from the Victorian government. So, I mean, that was and that wasn't considered to be able to be possible at the time. So, I mean, they, you can actually you, it can actually be a big thing as investors we need to consider. Yeah, that, um, that companies can lose licenses or can be nationalised if, if circumstances change. If anything, it might be even an advantage in making it less likely that they'll nationalise it because they're giving away so little, that 1.5%, that that 1.5% is a drop in the ocean compared to uh, the rest of their ownership stake and all the money coming in. So are they really going to kind of cause all this disruption and uh, potentially social unrest just by getting an extra 25 billion <laughs> um if you've got hundreds of billions coming in each year then it doesn't doesn't really make sense to, to me the concern isn't so much nationalization because uh, i think you're right graham I mean, that's a yeah, perfectly logical and i agree with that point but um the the stated profit of the business is still under threat and directly controlled by the saudi royal family so you can imagine a scenario where oil prices fall or Saudi expenses go up. Remember in Saudi Arabia, they, the, the state pays for basically everything. Um, so people often do not work and they don't have to pay for any of their own health, education, nothing gets paid. Nothing is out of their own pocket. The, the state you know, um, and Aramco behind the state actually pays for everything. So you can imagine a scenario where oil prices fall or expenditures rise and, and then all of a sudden um, that, that $100 billion profit that you're um, recording on, on your income statement suddenly doesn't really belong to you anymore. The taxes go up, um, special levies are charged. Um, I think the function of this business is not only to produce oil, it's to um, make the state function. And, and that is what will dictate how much money 
um, you as a as minority shareholder get out of it. So there's just so yeah. much uncertainty about getting access to the money. Yeah, that's a good point in that that you, you hear about uh, in normal listed companies, this idea of stakeholders where management is answering not only to the shareholders, but to the local community and to this and that. In Saudi Aramco's case, they're 100% answering to the Saudi mm. citizens because they know that if they upset them, then they're out of power. Yeah. So and the shareholders <laughs> of Saudi Aramco, they're little one and a half percent. They're not even on the radar compared to yeah. the other stakeholders that they're considering. But the other point you raise is interesting as well, Graham. I mean, these are the ultimate insiders, and the very fact that they are selling um, this hallowed a stake in this hallowed business, which um, is still a, a, a really important institution in Saudi Arabia, knowledge about reserves and production in Saudi Arabia is a state secret. So no one actually knows the real reserve status or how production is allocated between fields. There's one field in Saudi Arabia called. Guahar, I think the name is. Um, that's it's the biggest oil field in the world. It accounts for fifty percent of production. Hmm. We don't even know how many reserves are, are left in that field. If that field is depleted, then the entire the entire Aramco production base is weaker than we think. So um, that's just to say that um, these guys have a lot of information that hmm. the public does not have access to, and the fact that they are selling um, now might say something about oil's future. And it's really got me thinking about, um, you know, we, we have Woodside as a buy. I generally quite like um, oil stocks. I've made money from them in the past. I've recommended them in the past. But this has got me thinking, um, you know, what, what signal is this sending about the future of oil? It I don't have an answer. They're just doing it for strategic reasons. Having, if you get, because it's mainly going to be Americans buying it probably, mm. if you have a bunch of the public, of the American public owning a stake in Saudi Aramco, then you know that America is less likely to put an embargo or whatever on the country, um, even though they're an ally, but it would remove some risk politically, I imagine. It's just something that's on my mind a little bit. I'm thinking about it and um, there'll be more reading and thinking um, to go, but no change in recommendations so far, mainly because um, the the buy we have in this space is, is Woodside, which is an LNG producer. LNG is a, is a generation fuel Oil, you know, petroleum is a, is a transport fuel. Transport's really what's at risk of being disrupted here. LNG demand is still rather strong, um, and I, I don't see any real disruption risk at this stage. So Woodside stays on the buy list. Um, I wonder why Aramco hasn't bought other companies. Like, I mean, they could presumably buy Woodside in a day's earnings. I yeah. <laughs> um, wonder why they haven't expanded offshore off their own... They have uh, bought um, refineries. They spend a lot of money buying refineries in foreign countries. all over Asia. Ah. So they own the biggest refinery in India, for example. Oh, interesting. And um, elsewhere in, in Asia. Um, but, they, yeah, that's interesting, eh, that the expansion actually has come from non-oil generating um, hmm. fields and more towards processing. Anyway, we'll leave Aramco there. Um, let's take a quick break and we'll be back. JG, several years ago, you upgraded Woolies at $24, $25, and we fully expected that we were buying one of the best businesses in Australia, something that would be stable and growing for years to come um, and pretty much peerless in terms of competition. How's that expectation played out all these years later, even though we've made really good returns on the stock? Has the supermarket sector turned out the way you had expected back then? 
Well, this is an interesting thing. I and mean, we thought about it in 2016 when we upgraded the stock and thought, yeah, I mean, because there was a lot of risk of, with the business, with Aldi and so on, and that was people were saying Aldi's going to kill them. So we thought about it, but we thought the price was, was at the time. But since then, I think what's happened is that the industry has started deteriorating a bit. And even though um, Aldi is, you know, it's there, it's there, and certainly it's it's going to be a threat in the future. Um, Kaufland is coming, Costco's ever-present as well. Um, so we know there are threats there, but, it, but the, the market, it's also changing in other ways and probably in more important ways and maybe for me the the biggest risk there is the consumer preferences change and so I mean I, I've been a big fan of buying groceries online for quite a number of years now and and that 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 is now the fastest growing part of uh, Woolworths, uh, Woolworths sales growth so but the, the problem with that part of, of uh, the sales growth is it's much lower margin and it's likely to be lower margin in the future so there's just these um, there's the the growth of Aldi with it getting bigger the growth of the discount other the discounters coming in and the change in consumer preferences. I just think these supermarket businesses are probably not quite as good as they once were and that means we probably want to pay a bit less for them. Um, so that, that just worries me that now with the prices up sort of um, you know more than 50-60% since we upgraded it plus dividends, um, we're now paying a much higher price than we did but the threats to the industry have become I think more, more important and more worrying. Have you seen those threats play out overseas? I know Overseas supermarkets don't own anything like what, what ours own here. Uh, are Australian supermarkets relatively sheltered from those threats? That uh, are they more rampant overseas? I think there's there's some case to say the Australian grocery market is just a, a better market for the incumbents because I mean Coles and Woolworths between them have have seventy billion in sales. I mean that's you know that's seventy percent of the grocery market. That's pretty concentrated and still still is despite Aldi having ten billion in sales. It's still a very concentrated market. So it probably is a better market than the US and the UK. But probably there is in the back of my mind is the UK what's the UK experience and um, we know that in, during the GFC and in the period afterwards people became um, more interested in saving money on their groceries mm. and so they went to the discounters like Aldi and Lidl and unfortunately what the uh, Tesco and Sainsbury's and Asda and so on the super big supermarket change over there what they did is they basically just held their prices and refused to exceed any uh, any margin to those discounters and and it actually ended up being a, a very very big problem for those UK supermarkets so I'm just a bit worried that that actually might happen here and uh, and that we might see with, the, with these changing consumer trends and with uh, people being a bit more concerned about you know the the um, their hip pockets that we may see a similar trend here and it, it just means that you know that these these businesses are probably could be a bit weaker than what we think the valuations say something completely different I'm shocked at the sort of multiples these things trade at but the margins have also compressed a long way from where they were and the businesses themselves are responding to strategic threats um, one of the ways they're doing that JG is by shrinking to some extent. Woolies has announced a demerger. Talk to us about some of the um, responses and, and where the margins sit, and then let's have a little chat about Endeavour. I think the demerger is almost a different. Um, the the demergers are almost different. I, I, I think that the the reasons why the supermarket businesses aren't doing that, aren't, their margins aren't growing, are slightly different to why they're demerging, but okay. sticking with the demerger. Um, I mean, I think that... Um, it makes sense that, to me, it makes sense that you would demerge these businesses. Um, as I said before, I'm a big fan of focus. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, a supermarket business is a bit different to a liquor business. I know they've, they've been combined in the past. But the um, the Endeavour drinks business, um, w when it lists, if, if it does uh, demerge from uh, Woolworths rather than be sold, um, it'll own both the drinks business but also the hotels business. There's been a long um, history with uh, people being unhappy with Woolworths because it owns poker machines as mm. part of that Endeavour 
business. So it, it makes sense that um, they'll hive off the sin businesses, um, the businesses that own the drinks and these hotels, um, and they'll be. I think the probably the and while that's a good thing from um, from a strategic point of view, it also also makes sense in terms of that business being able to invest. So what I'd expect that Endeavour Group, when it lists, it'll probably buy more hotels. Um, it'll probably become perhaps a, a, a more hotel focused business. Double down on sin. <laughs> that, that's right, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, it may actually end up um, buying more poker machines because it'll be free from um, yeah. the capital constraints that have been put on it by Woolworths as a supermarket company. Not just the capital constraints, but you can imagine Woolworths management probably haven't been all that keen to expand that part of their operations. They've just probably been running it on a standalone basis. Exactly right. I mean, the, the most important thing after the 2015 uh, price cuts that Woolworths um, put in that, that slashed its margins that you referred to earlier, Gaurav, um, that that's um, really what they needed to do was turn that supermarket business around. And so all the capital that uh, Woolworths had was directed to the supermarkets business and they pretty much let the, the hotels business and the drinks business, um, which were pretty good businesses in themselves, um, they let them, uh, they let starve them of capital is probably a reasonable way of putting it. So under its own separate management and separate uh, structure and separate listing, um, it'll have access to capital that it wouldn't have had under the Woolworths group structure. Now, when you say the, the drinks business, do you mean Dan Murphy's or is this retailing drinks through hotels or both? Uh, it's it's both. Um, yeah. So Endeavour Drinks, um, it's quite a complicated, it's a surprisingly complicated structure which I don't <laughs> think the market knew about at the time. But mm. um, it, it is Dan Murphy's, but it's also the BWS chain as well. Yep. And they have a lot of little um, little smaller chains like Cellamasters. Um, so they're the main chains, but it's also the hotel businesses as well. Yep. Um, and that, that includes um, drive-throughs and, and sales of um, sales of liquor on on premise on uh, in hotels. And then there's also the the um, the poker machine business as well will all be wrapped up in this Endeavour group. These are remarkably dominant businesses, James. These must be pretty good quality, and, and this is surely something we take a look at once the, the merger comes through. Yeah, I mean, Endeavour Group, if you're happy to own poker machines and uh, and drinks businesses, it, it will be a pretty good business. I don't think it's actually um, as good as a business as the, as a supermarket business, and, and seeing I think the supermarket business is deteriorating, I think there's some risks there as well because I think liquor is, uh, is actually even more threatened by online mm. penetration. Um, but it, it's still going to be a pretty good business overall and so yeah we, we certainly will take a look at it and I, I think what particularly um, I find interesting is the uh, access to capital that Endeavour Group will have afterwards and it just means it'll be able to buy hotels if it wants it'll be able to buy more poker machines if it wants it'll be able to buy more bottle shops it'll be able to develop the land that um, that it has uh, so there's a whole lot of um, opportunities there that it hasn't really been able to, to do that it will be able to do under Endeavour Group structure. Why do you say that the liquor group is at greater risk of online uh, disruption? Uh, I think because liquor is bulky. Um, it's a it's a bulky asset, so it's a, it's actually lends itself quite well to delivery. Yeah. Whereas people um, are generally, I think, more willing to go into a supermarket. They need to buy their their avocados or their their rocket or their tomatoes or whatever, and so they'll pick up a whole lot of groceries. Whereas there's really I don't really see any reason why um, you need to go into a, a liquor store. To be honest, I think that a lot of that business at some point is going to go online, um, so it'll actually end up being probably greater penetration in the liquor business for online than in the supermarket business that's my that's my theory anyway very happy to hear a different point of view yeah i would agree with that as well um i've ordered liquor online a few times and and a refrigerated truck has never i've never had it cold and i think that's one big thing whereas um, when i order groceries online it 100 percent comes um cold uh, in, in cold storage and that's a much 
it's a far more difficult logistics chain to grow and to sustain rather than a sort of a dry, um, warm logistics chain. And it's all it's already boxed, um, so you can fit um, just more in the truck. I think there are a lot of ways. I completely agree. It's, it just lends itself well to delivery. I was wondering about the regulations, though, because I imagine the government it wouldn't be thrilled to see piles and piles of liquor being distributed by mail. Um, and there might be some um, some benefit for big incumbents that way to prevent competition. Well, that's an interesting point, Grover. I think there have been some miners buying liquor online and having it delivered. So, yeah, there could be some regulatory threats around that. But this sounds like a really interesting idea. I look forward to reading more about Endeavour. Just quickly on the dates, when are we expecting um, something to be done? So shareholders need to vote on the first stage of the demerger, um, or sorry, the, the merger of um, yes. of <laughs> Endeavour Group and yeah. uh, ALH in um, in December, and just at the AGM in December 16, okay. I think it is. Okay. And then next uh, February, I think next uh, February, the merger takes place, and then you'll need to vote again on the actual demerger next year. So probably there's not going to be much happening until maybe um, April. April, May next year on the on the demerger. Okay, well, I'm sure we'll hear about that uh, again. Um, we better leave it there, gentlemen. Graham, it's a great to have you on, and, and welcome back to it's our nice country. Nice to be here, <laughs> uh, JG. As always, wonderful to have you as well. Thanks, Rev. For everyone else, thank you for listening.